0: Acts chapter 26. We will read a passage out of chapter 25. Acts chapter 26 be our text this morning. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Acts chapter 26, verse number 1. Paul's standing before a man named Agrippa. He is the king of Judea. At this time, they're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Paul's been uh, under house arrest, so to speak, uh, for two years. And he's now making his case before King Agrippa. And the Bible says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. You always got to get nervous when a preacher asks you to be patient. Amen. My manner of life from my youth, Which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which hope, or under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. You might say, well, preacher, what's that hope he's talking about? Well, he says in verse eight, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. When we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me. And saying in the Hebrew tongue, can I just pause there? You ever wonder why he says that saying in the Hebrew tongue? It's interesting when you look at the three times Paul gives his testimony. And here he says in the Hebrew tongue, well, he was being accused by the Jews of being a blasphemer, of being an idolater, of being someone that followed strange gods. He's saying, you know, it's funny because when uh, the God of glory spoke to me, he spoke to me in your language. Amen. He's saying it must have been your God that spoke to me because he spoke in your language. And he says, he spoke unto me, and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. You see, by the way, you persecute the church, you're persecuting him. It's his body. Paul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Christ. And this is what he said to him, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me." Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be home, Lord. Thank you for a home and a home church and a place we can come and worship. Lord, I pray that as we approach your word today, you would have our hearts softened to the truth of it. Lord, we know that if we desire, we can harden our hearts against your truth. You won't stop us from doing that, but it can't help us if we do that. So, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be soft this morning. I pray that we would be willing to examine honestly, sincerely our standing with you, our relationship with you and what you've done in our lives and what you desire to do. I pray, Lord, if there's any under the sound of my voice that are lost, and I don't know a single heart in this room, save my own. And Lord, even it's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. But you know every heart here. You know every thought. You know every priority. You know every question and every doubt. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that you'd take your word and you'd minister it to those hearts in exactly the way that is most needful. Lord, if there's any that are lost, show them Christ, Him alone, Him above all. Lord, that He's the only hope. Lord, I pray that if there's any discouraged, you'd encourage them. Any that are haughty, lifted up, that you'd abase them. Any that are out in sin, that you'd draw them back to yourself. But Lord, that as we leave this place, we would all be found more in the image of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done and what you will do. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we read in the Word of God, I don't know about you, but I, and I'm just, you know, confession's good for the soul. I'll make a little confession here this morning. Sometimes I get a little jealous of Bible characters. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I, man, I'll read through my Bible and, and I'll see some of the great things that God has done in people's lives and, and I'll think to myself, I wish I could have been there to see that. I wish I could have been there when the Red Sea was parted. Wouldn't that have been incredible to see? I mean, when all of a sudden, I mean, this walls just, just pile up of water on either side and they go through and it's not a muddy mess, but instead they just walk through on, on dry ground. I was reading a news article. I don't know. Some of y'all ain't even going to know what I'm talking about, but they got this big hippie festival out west called Burning Man. You ever heard of Burning Man? It's a pagan festival is what it is. And they get out in the desert and do pagan things like pagans do. But it's out in the middle of this like just big desert. I mean, just bone dry. It never rains. It's so dry that they can schedule big pagan festivals and don't have to worry about it. And God dumped four inches of rain on that pagan party. And they shut down the roads and the airports. And all these people can do now is just sit in their tents and and watch God make it rain on their pagan festival. I thought, man, that must have been what them slime pits was like in the Vale of Sidom in the book of Genesis. Amen. They just mired in them. And, but the Bible says when his people crossed over the Red Sea, they didn't go through on a muddy mess. They went through on dry land. I would have loved to have seen that. I look through the Old Testament. I think about the time when God made the sun stand still in its course when the children of Israel were fighting uh, the Amalekites. I, I think about when God parted the river of Jordan. I think about even sort of what we would consider to be devastating miracles of God, like when He opened the earth up and it swallowed up Korah and his company. I think about when Moses took the staff and 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 smote the rock and the water came forth. I mean, I just, there's all these miracles in the Bible. I think about the first person ever raised from the dead, whenever Elijah uh, raises the, the son of the widow woman. Of name. what an amazing thing that must have been! I think about God calling fire down from heaven to fall on the altar on Mount Carmel. What an incredible miracle that that was! And and you know, we start to get into the New Testament, and over and over again in the Gospels, I mean, blinded eyes are opened, and lame legs are are given strength, and and mouths that that couldn't speak are are able to speak, and ears that couldn't hear are able to hear. Just all these miracles. I would have loved to have seen the 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 feeding of the five thousand. I would have loved to have seen Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, come walking on that storm on the lake Gennesaret. I mean, just all these miracles that take place. When I think about all the miracles of the Bible, and you say, well, preacher, what's the greatest miracle that God's ever performed? I can't help but think about the empty tomb. Certainly, there is no miracle in the Bible greater than the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus Christ became sin for us. He became your sin. He became my sin. Where we should have died in our sins, died and went to hell. That's what we deserve. It's what I deserve. And it's what you deserve. Instead, he was made our sin. And God, when he should have smote us, he smote Jesus Christ. Said, so "Why would he do that, preacher? God was not smiting us. He was smiting the sin." Amen. When Christ was made, God doesn't want to just smite mankind. God loves mankind. He loved the world and gave His only begotten Son uh, that whosoever believed in Him uh, might not perish but might have everlasting life. God doesn't hate humanity. He loves humanity. But He had to strike and smite and judge sin. So Jesus became sin so that instead of God smiting us, God would smite Him. Then after becoming sin for us, after suffering on the cross of Calvary, after the sun darkening, after the rocks rending, after the temple veil tearing, the Bible says they took him off the cross and put him in a borrowed tomb. He didn't stay there. Bless the Lord, he didn't stay there. I like I like how the Bible says in the book of Acts, Peter's up preaching and he talks about the resurrection. He says that, uh, that he rose from the dead because he was not able to be holden of death. Death didn't have jurisdiction. Death didn't have a claim. Death didn't have the ability to hold on to him. Death grabbed hold of him. And and he just thought he was grabbing hold of another human being. And then he he realized he grabbed hold of the blessed Son of God. And he let go of him because he didn't have the authority to hold him any longer. The Bible describes how that he got up and he left that tomb empty behind him as a testimony for you and I. The stone that was rolled away wasn't rolled away so he could get out. It was rolled away so we could look in so that we could be reminded that He had conquered death, that He had borne our sin and become our sin, and then exhausted our sin on His righteousness and on His holiness, and got up victorious over death. What an amazing miracle. I think of all the miracles I wish I could see, it would probably be the empty tomb. But when I come to Acts chapter number 26, my heart is smitten by a truth that I think is important for us all to see in our own lives personally. As I said, Paul is speaking to Agrippa. Agrippa is the son of Herod Agrippa, and he's the king of Judea, such as it was at that time in history. It had been diminished during the reign of Claudius, the emperor of Rome. But such as it was, he was the king. He was the top dog. When Paul says, I'm testifying to both small and great, no doubt he was thinking of Agrippa when he spoke of great. He would witness to greater than even Agrippa. He would stand before Nero himself. But he's saying, King Agrippa, you're a powerful man, you're a wealthy man, you're a prominent man, and he is he's giving his testimony to Agrippa. And the subject that is at issue, and this is an important thing for you to understand in New Testament history, it was not the death of Jesus that was off disputed. It was not the, the burial of Jesus that was controversial. The thing that the Jews hated was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't hound Paul all over the Mediterranean because he preached that Jesus died. They would have admitted Jesus died. The thing that was problematic to them was the resurrection, the empty tomb. This flew directly in the face of their uh, public assessment of Jesus and of their personal perspective of their religion. And we're told that this was the reason that Paul had been accused. Back in chapter 25, uh, Festus is talking, not from gun smoke, amen. Uh, But well, maybe from gun smoke. I'm not going to limit God, but I don't think so. Uh, But verse 17, Festus, he's talking to Agrippa, and he's he's sort of explaining Paul's case and why Paul is under, under house arrest. And he says in verse 17, Therefore, when they were come hither, when the Jews were come hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man, Paul, to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, They brought none accusation of things, as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So in other words, the reason Paul is accused, the reason he has chains on his wrist is because he's telling a broken world that Jesus is alive. And the Jews hated that. And so they were hounding him and following him and persecuting him. And he is now under arrest awaiting trial because of this. That's the reason that Paul in chapter 26, he speaks to Agrippa. And he says, I'm happy I get to be here. I'm happy that I get to testify before you. I'm happy I get to speak for myself. And then he says this in verse number 8. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Now, stop and consider the force of what he's saying. saying, Agrippa, I'm here because I say that God raised Jesus from the dead. I'm here because I believe that God raises those from the dead that put their faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. To the Jews, this seemed a thing incredible. To King Agrippa, this seemed a thing incredible. But Paul's reply is, why would that be an incredible thing with you? If you think that's impressive... Let me tell you what God has done in my life. (laughs) In other words, he's saying, Agrippa, that's a great miracle. But let me tell you about a greater miracle. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, the greatest of all miracles. I wish I could have seen the Red Sea parted. But can I tell you this? God's done something bigger in my life than he ever did when he parted the Red Sea. I wish I could have seen when he stopped the sun in its course. But God's done a bigger miracle in my life. Than when he parted, or when he stopped the sun in its course. On and on we could go in the canon of amazing miracles in the Word of God. But do you know that if you're here today, and if you're saved by the grace of God, if you are a Christian, you're a believer, you're born again. I don't just mean that that you ascribe to a creed, but I mean you have met Jesus Christ and you are saved by God's grace. That a greater miracle and a greater proof of God's omnipotence and God's might and God's glory and God's majesty has happened in your life life than has happened in all of the word of God. If you're here today and you're lost without Christ and you say, well, preacher, I just want proof. I want proof. I want proof. You can look around the room and we'll journey with Paul for a few moments and you can see all the proof you need that God is both alive and interested in our lives. Paul says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And then he says this in verse 9. I want you to notice five things this morning and then we'll be done. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul looks at Agrippa and says, Agrippa, you don't know me, but if you did know me, you'd know what an amazing thing it is that I'm standing here this day. In other words, he casts Agrippa's focus away from the small, unassuming missionary that's standing before him. And he says, Agrippa, I want to tell you a story about a younger man, about an angrier man, about a violent man, about a deluded and deceived man. I'm Paul the Apostle, but I want to tell you about Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus didn't look anything like the Paul that's standing before you today, Agrippa. And if you could have just seen what I was, you'd know only a miracle of God could make me what I am today. First thing he points to is his condition. He says, let me tell you what I used to be before God found me. Some of us in this room, man, we could talk about what we were before God found us. You know, and I'm going to preach a message here in a second, amen. I mean, but listen... Some of you may look at, if you've grown up in a good home, grown up in a pretty stable environment, you may look at it and you may say, well, what's the big deal? People go to church, people went to church where I grew up and everything. But if you understood the story of some of the people that sit in these pews, if you knew what they were, I mean, listen, I, there, there's people in this room that if you'd met them before they met Christ, you would have crossed the street to get away from them. Uh, there's people in this room that if, if you had met them before they had met Christ, you'd pull up beside them at a red light, you'd reach over and lock your door try to keep them from climbing over and hurting you. And yet here they sit today, blood washed, redeemed lives, completely transformed by the grace of God. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you knew what I was, then you wouldn't question whether there's a living God. Notice three things he says uh, about or two things he says about. Look at that. You just gained a minute back. Two things he says about that. Verse number nine, he says this, that he was deliberate in his rejection of Christ. He's standing here testifying about a living Savior. But he's saying, if you had known me back then, you would have known that I was not just culturally inducted into an aversion away from Christ. I was not just part of the group going with the flow. I was not just through peer pressure a rejecter of Christ. But he says it this way, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I sat down and I reasoned it out. I sat down and I assessed my responsibilities. I sat down and I looked at what my capabilities were. And I made the clear, resolute decision that whoever this Jesus was, I did not want anything to do with Him. And that the people that followed Him, they were not just benign. They were not just uh, harmless. They were not just innocent. But that they were a cancer on society. That they were a scourge that had to be gotten rid of. I was an enemy of Jesus Christ, Paul says. You now Here's the truth. And you say, well, preacher, that may be true of Paul, but I haven't seen that in a lot of people's lives. But you know the Bible tells us that all of us that are lost without Christ, that we are the enemies of God. You may not feel a lot of personal animus towards the Lord, but that doesn't change the fact that you're on the opposite end of this thing from Him. You're, you're separated as far as the east is from the west and you are, you are plugged into a world system and you are devoted and, and show fealty to the flesh and the world that operates in direct contravention of God and who He is and what He wants for your life. So preacher, could God save me? He saved Paul. You better believe He could save you. And if you were that person, I want you to know, hey, listen, I don't know if God will pay that bill for you. I don't know if God will heal that disease for you. I don't know if God will mend that relationship for you. But I'll tell you this, if you're saved by God's grace, it's already been proved to you that there is nothing beyond His ability to do. He says this, man, I was deliberate in my rejection of Christ. But then look at verse number 10. He says this, which thing I also did. He says it wasn't just a speculative religion It's always been funny to me. I, the Internet, I, I guess it's been a good thing, maybe. I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that anymore. I guess it's been good that people have been able to express free thought, at least such as it has been for whatever window of time we've had in human history. But it has also sort of bred a, a caustic uh, uh, courage. Let's say it that way. If you ever get on and talk to people on the Internet, you find out people are a lot badder on the Internet than they would be if they stand in your front yard. <laughs> they got all the answers when they're sitting behind the keyboard and got Google to give them all the answers, amen? And uh it, it's funny because there's a lot of, I would say this, speculative atheists. So what do you mean a speculative atheist preacher? They don't live their life like an atheist, but they like to purport that they are an atheist. Do you understand how desperately different it would change your life if you really believed there was no God? If you really believed when we died we turned to dirt and there were no consequences for anything afterwards? You understand, you'd just be a savage out in a loincloth in the middle of the woods, just satisfying whatever impulse happened to wander by you. Why would you ever have a decent relationship? Why would you ever have a kind word to a single person? And Paul says this, I was not just a rejecter of Christ in a speculative sense. I didn't like those other Jews just sit back at the Sanhedrin and stroke my beard and criticize and talk about how that problem should be fixed. Paul says, I was a go-getter. I went out and lived a wicked life. He says, I didn't just have it in my head that Jesus wasn't the way. He says, because I believed He was not the way, I went out and did something about it. He said, I believe these people were liars, so I went out and I found them. I compelled them to blaspheme. I I, I threw them in prison. I persecuted them. When they put them to death, I spoke up and I said, yeah, this is a good thing. Paul says, that's who I used to be. That's what I was. He says, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceeding, I like how he says this. I don't like it, but it's instructive. And being exceedingly mad against him. Now, that doesn't mean angry. It means out of his mind, like a madman. Yeah. He says, I was a lunatic in my passionate persecution of God's people. All right, all right. We're not just talking about somebody that, that would say, well, you know, I guess the Bible has good things for society, but I don't know if I'm really bought in on it. Paul says, I was a hundred million percent against these followers of Christ. So much so, he says, it's all I could think about. He said, I'd get up in the morning and, and, and it consumed my mind. I would try to find them. I would hunt them down. I would look for them anywhere I could find them. And I would try to kill them. And I would try to throw them in jail. He says this, that he was devoted in his rejection of Christ. He says, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under strange cities. That's who Paul the Apostle was before God found him. Do you understand what a miracle that is? I've often thought to myself, what a, what a, I want to say this reverently. I don't want, I don't want to miscommunicate what I'm saying here. I've often thought what an almost absurd or outlandish thing it is to witness to people. And here's what I mean by that. You're going to go up and you're going to talk. Now we oftentimes witness people that we know well, but often we witness people that we don't know at all. And we're going to go up and talk to somebody that does not know us. They don't know if we love them. They don't know if we care about them. We say that we do. And, and, and you and I know that we do, but they don't know that. And we're going to tell them that everything that they've thought, everything that they believe is incorrect. Yeah. Right. That, that, that everything that they thought they were good enough to go to heaven on their own terms, that's not true. Right. They thought when that preacher baptized them, that was enough to get them to heaven. That's right. not true that praying to their idols and totems, that that's not going to get them to heaven, and and, and that, that they think that, but that that's not true. And, and and then we're going to tell them the absolute most transformative truth imaginable. We're going to tell them how to get to God. We're going to tell them not just how to make a slight course correction, but a complete 180 degree turn in their life. Preacher, you're right. Why do we ever do it? Because it works. Because it worked for me. Because it worked for you. Because you were headed that direction. Thought you was right. Thought you was good. Thought you was alright. Thought you was settled. Then some obnoxious preacher come along with a Bible and wrecked your world. Showed you that you was lost without Christ. Showed you that you thought you was a good person, but in fact all of sinning comes short of the glory of God showed you that you thought that your works of righteousness were good enough, but that we're saved not by works of righteousness, which we had done by His mercy. You found out all of a sudden that baptism, that that charlatan punched you through that pool before you even understood what you were doing, didn't do a thing for you. And that actually the only hope you had was by faith in Jesus Christ, by agreeing with God about who and what you were and asking for His forgiveness for your sins. Paul says, don't you see what a miracle it is, Agrippa? If you knew who I was... Paul would say this I think it's not that what I am is so impressive it's that what I was was so rotten and I'll tell you listen it ain't that what I am is anything but it's that who and what I was in my heart and my soul and the course I was on for my life was so destructive and so rotten and so wicked and to see what God has done what a miracle that it is He tells him about his condition. But then in verse 12, I like this. Whereupon. Now that word whereupon, we sometimes treat those words in our King James Bible like they're throwaway words. Like God looked at his Bible and just wanted it to be about 8% longer. So he put those in. But that's not what it what No, whereupon. In other words, as I was in that condition. Upon where I was. In other words, God came and found me where I was. He didn't wait for me to get better. He didn't wait for me to soften my heart. He didn't wait for for me to, to, to compromise with him. Where I was, whereupon, here's what happened, he says, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, at midday, O king. Now, why does that matter? At midday, O king, he says, I saw in the way a light from heaven. You'd say, well, preacher. It's it's midday, He just saw the sun. No, he says this, it was above the brightness of the sun. Yeah. He says, I could see the sun, but whatever this was, was brighter than anything natural. Amen. Now, you do understand, until we came into the age of these wonderful fluorescents that are probably killing us all, but until we came into that age, all the light in the world was from the sun, predominantly. I mean, you know, stars give off some light, the moon reflects light from the sun. But in Paul's day... The sun was the, the source of natural light. He says, but I saw a light that was an unnatural light. It wasn't a natural light. It was greater than what the natural light could show. Have you ever in your life had something, maybe a vehicle or, or maybe a, a piece of, of furniture outside and, and in the evening it looks clean, but you get out in the bright morning or noonday sun and you realize how filthy and how dirty it really is? And Paul would say this, under that natural light, there were things I could not see. But all of a sudden, here came this spiritual light, this supernatural light, and it shone above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. He tells them not just about his condition, but he tells them about his collision. He says, i was just going about my business one day, a Christ hater, just like everybody else. I'm serious, just like everybody else right? Or just a God-hater like everybody else in this natural world. I was just going along, just a Christ-hater, going about my Christ-hating business. I was going to find some Christian to hassle and harass and persecute. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, it wasn't the sun, because I'd been riding in the sun. I'd been riding the natural light, but the natural light didn't show me anything wrong with me. But all of a sudden, a supernatural light shone from heaven And I saw myself in a way I had never seen myself before. You know why it's a miracle that God saved you and saved me? Because the Word of God, the the supernatural light of God, and the Spirit of God in applying that light shows you things about your life that you naturally would have never seen or acknowledged or admitted. (laughs) It's amazing to me that man, when he looks at himself relentlessly and obsessively, He always looks better than when he started. It's amazing what you can acclimate yourself. I mean, listen, you just you stare in the mirror at that ugly face long enough, it won't seem so bad. Amen? But when we look in the Word of God, it's different. It shows us the blemishes, shows us the faults, the failures, the flaws, shows us the weakness and the infirmity and the depravity. And Paul says, I was just going about my business one day. I believed I was the most righteous man walking the earth. That's what he says in Philippians 3. He says, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. He says, I was more righteous than all those hypocrites back in Jerusalem who hated these Christians but wouldn't go out and persecute them. And they sent me as their mad dog to do their dirty work. I was the most upright, righteous man walking the face of the earth, setting astride that white stallion of my self-righteousness. Then all of a sudden, here comes God, shines a light from heaven, And everything I thought I knew, I found out I didn't know. And everything I thought was false, I found out was true. And everything I thought was true, I found out was a lie. It's a miracle that the Word of God could take and so radically transform our worldview through its entrance into our life. He talks about His collision with a shining light. And in verse 14, He says this, And when we were all fallen to the earth, because sometimes that's what God has to do to get our attention. He has to knock us off that high horse. When we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, I want to pause here. You understand that Paul persecuted the Christians for the same reason that he is now being persecuted in Acts chapter 26. The, it was always the resurrection, the concept of a living Lord that bothered the Jews in, in Jerusalem. That was what they hated. That's the reason that they they tried to pay people off to lie about the tomb and to say that the disciples had carried it away. That's why it's what they were most concerned about was that people are going to see that the tomb is empty. They're going to know and believe that he is risen. So Paul is right now on the road going to debunk and to destroy this myth of a living Jesus. That's what he's on the road to do. He's going to go far wide to strange cities. To to shut these people up that keep lying to everyone and telling them that Jesus is not dead. He knows Jesus is dead. He saw Him crucified. He knew people that had seen it. He, He knew that He had been... He knows, and He's going to go tell these liars and show these liars. And He's going down the road, and all of a sudden this light shines from heaven. And then a voice speaks, and the voice knows Him. He calls Him by name. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now that must have been confusing for Paul. He is going about thinking that in, in doing evil that he's doing God a service. And the God that speaks is speaking in a Hebrew tongue. That must have been a little puzzling. And then he says, why persecutest thou me? And Paul started no doubt to get nervous and think, well now there's only one person that I'm persecuting here. And so he says, who art thou? And he says, I am Jesus. (laughs) Paul would, Paul would later on describe this As his resurrection meeting. He would talk about the other disciples. Who saw him after he was risen. Of above 500 brethren. And James and Cephas. But Then he would say this. And last of all. He was seen of me as of one born out of due time. Paul says this. I didn't just have a collision with a shining light. I had a collision with a living Lord. I found out. That him that I thought was dead. I knew he was dead. I had told people he was dead. I had proclaimed he was dead. I had sworn in a court of law that he was dead. I had, I had helped people be, be crucified and be put to death because I knew he was dead and there he is and he's alive. Amen. What a miracle it is that a man so firm in his conviction that Jesus Christ is a charlatan and a liar, that he is dead, that he is but a memory soon to be stamped out and snuffed out. And on the road to Damascus, he meets him, and he's alive and well. But you know, it's no less a miracle that the living God could speak to your heart today sitting here in Knoxville, Tennessee. I mean, I expect none of you saw a light shining from heaven. I'm getting a little thin up here. It might have reflected, amen, but that's not an angelic glow. That's just raising kids, you know. You might not see a light shining from heaven. You, you probably won't hear a voice audibly speaking with you From heaven, But the very word of God speaks to your heart and your life today and shows you what you know to be true in your heart and mind, that what God's word says is right. What it says about you, what it says about your eternal destiny, what it says about your hope is correct. It is no less a miracle what God is doing today than what God did on that day. He points to his condition. He points to his collision. But verse 16, he points to his commission. He says this, This is what the voice said to him. But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. To make thee a minister and a witness. Both of these things which thou hast seen. In other words, go tell everybody what I did for you today. Go tell everybody what you saw today. Go tell everybody what happened to you today. And of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. So in other words, Paul says, if you had seen what I was, you'd know what a miracle it is that I'm who I am today. But he says, if you realize that there was a time when my life's work was to tell everyone that the witness of these Christians is false, and yet now here I stand accused today, Agrippa, of telling you that what these Christians are saying is true. I made it my life's work to shut the mouths of those that said he was alive, and now I'm here to tell you that he is alive. (laughs) God's commission in his life, number one, to be a great witness. In other words, go tell everybody what I did for you today. It's funny the things people talk about. It's funny the things people obsess about. But can I tell you that for the child of God, there ought to be one topic that prevails above all over, uh, all, all everything else. And that's what Christ did for us when he saved us. I love meeting people that are, that are saved and they've not forgotten about it. You know what I mean when I say that. People, that they're saved and they ain't got over it. They ain't been to church enough to get over it yet. Amen. And I love it. I love to meet them because all they want to talk about is Jesus Christ. Uh, Those people get on your nerves. You can't argue with them about politics. They ain't interested in it. They just want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. They don't want to argue with you about, about college football because they just want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. They're obsessive about Jesus Christ. You know why that is? Because God made them a great witness. A witness of things that once they affirmed to be false, but now their whole life is devoted to proclaiming the truth of them. He wanted to make him a great witness. But notice not only to be a great witness. Look at verse 17. He says this, Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom I now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which is justified by faith in me. I don't know about you, but I know what my reply to that would have been. Is that all? Is that all, God? You, You don't want to ask anything bigger. You just want me to go win the world, right? That's it? Here's what God's saying to Paul. He's saying these people that once you would have considered dogs, not worthy of your attention, not worthy of your interest and certainly not worthy of your time and affection, they're now going to be your parish. They're going to be your congregation. They're going to be your harvest field. He would talk about this in Ephesians chapter 3 as being a dispensation of the grace of God in his life that he would be made the apostle to the Gentiles. That that would be the great grand work of God in his life is that God would take a man who was completely and fully equipped to do something else with his life and instead put him on this path where he cannot depend upon the arm of his flesh and his education and his charisma and his intellectualism but instead just had to go a broken, wounded man, a blind missionary going as an earthen vessel to carry the treasure of the gospel to a people that he knew nothing about. And that that would be the work that God would do in his life. Here's, here's the commission that he has to be a great witness, but two, to do a great work. You want to know if God's alive? Look at the things he does through his people. Look at how he stirs up the passion of his people. And I understand we can all sit around and gripe about the apathy that is so prevalent in modern day church. Hey, listen, if you knew people like I knew people, you wouldn't be amazed that some people don't. You'd be amazed that some people ever do. You wouldn't be shocked that there's some that don't live for Him. You'd be shocked that there's any that do live for Him, given the depravity and wretchedness of man. But instead, the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life prompts them and stirs them and sanctifies and separates and equips them for a great work to be done. You want to know if God's real? Just look at what He's doing in the lives of His people. He speaks about His commission and then He speaks about His conversion. He says, I want to tell you how things changed for me. Now remember, up to this moment... All the changes in Paul's life have been internal. I mean, on the Damascus Road, up to this moment, everything's been internal. He's just riding along, God kicks him off the horse, shines the light of heaven in his eyes, uh, straightens him out, tells him what he's got to plan for his life. But here's the question, what will Paul do with that? Here's what he says he did with that in verse 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. He says this, everything changed for me on that day. What I was before that day doesn't, doesn't register anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. Because today I'm a different person. And Paul would say, if you want to know when that happened to me, It wasn't after I'd been in church five, six months and really plugged in. It wasn't when I started serving in some ministry. It wasn't when I really started to read the right self-help books that straightened me out. Paul says, here's when everything changed for me. When I met Jesus Christ, everything changed. What changed? Notice number one, his course changed. He had been living in direct rebellion against the word of God. He had been living in great opposition and hatred and vitriol towards the cause of Christ. But he says in verse 19, I was not disobedient under the heavenly vision. In other words, he says, I had been going this way, but then God showed me what it was. And I turned around and went that way. I had been disobedient to who Jesus was. I had been disobedient to who God said that he was. I had this idea of who God was, but it wasn't what was in the Bible. But God showed me who and what I was. And I made a choice to go with God instead of going with me. I cast my lot in with Christ. And he says, I was not disobedient under the heavenly vision. Can I tell you this? You get saved, it'll change your whole life. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have problems. and It doesn't mean there won't be disappointments in life. And it doesn't mean you won't make mistakes and do things wrong and, and live at times in a way that, that, that displeases the Lord. I think, though it is tragic, we would all admit that that's a reality in our lives from time to time and often more time than not. But can I tell you this? If you'll accept Christ, it will completely change the direction that your life is going. I've often said, and I was mentioning it this morning in Sunday school, I have a boring testimony, and I love it. I wish everybody had a boring testimony. I have a boring testimony. I was raised in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. I was raised in a Christian school. I I was in more church, listen, than than most evangelists are growing up. And, uh, you know, I I was, uh, every day of my life, I heard the gospel. None of that really meant anything to me until I was 10 years old. Not because I had reached some age of accountability. Uh, not because uh, I, somebody presented it the right way. But because the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and, and convinced me that I was lost. You see, that, that's what conviction means. The, the Bible describes, uh, only one time is the word conviction used in the Bible, and it's in John chapter number 8, when the Bible says they were all convicted within themselves whenever Christ wrote on the ground. Uh, a lot of people have speculated what he was writing. I think it's probably likely he was writing the Ten Commandments. You know, that's, that's exactly how it is. When we see God write His commandments on our life and show us that we are wrong, that convinces us that we have sinned and done something wrong, and we are convicted about that what it means to be convicted to be convinced of your sin by God so I was convicted that I was a sinner I knew I'd never been saved I knew all the right things to say I knew what the gospel was I knew all the theology of it even as a 10 year old boy but I had never I had never bowed my heart to him I'd never received him as my savior he showed me I was lost and there in that little bedroom I called on Christ I remember thinking to myself, Lord, I don't want to die and go to hell. I know I'm going to hell, and I don't want to die and go to hell. A lot of real uppity people say, well, you shouldn't get saved uh, because you're afraid of going to hell. Well, that's fine for them. Maybe they got a better reason, but that's why I got saved. I believed hell was a real place. Guess what? I ain't grown out of that either. I still believe hell's a real place. And I didn't want to go there. And I knew, of course, that God loved me. I knew Christ had died for me. And I asked him, I don't remember the words that I said. I mean, if you at least you put a gun to my head, I couldn't recite them to you. But I know that my heart was, I said, Lord, I'm I'm lost and I need to be saved. Please forgive me and save me. And you know what he did? He did. He saved me. But you know, when you have a boring testimony, sometimes you kind of get feeling bad. Like, well, I don't have any great testimony like these other people. But understand, it's like an arrow being fired from a bow. And depending on when the course is corrected depends on how far off the course must be changed. In other words, it's not what my life was, it's what it would have been. Man, I went to, I went to Christian school, and Christian school like it used to be, uh, or ours one. <laughs> uh, our, yeah, listen, most kids I went to school with was messed up. Some of them I still pastor today. Amen. Some of them Christian school kids hard as coffin nails, man. They're, they're, I'm talking about drugs and, and wickedness and vileness and all kinds of stuff. And I've seen some of them. And their arrow kept on the course it was on. They played religion. They pretended. They said the right things when the preachers and the principal and the teachers wanted them to. And they just played games. And their arrow stayed on the same course. And I could take you to some of them. Some of them we'd have to have have the FBI to find them. Some of them we'd find them in gutters with needles in their arms. Some of them we'd find them on their fifth or sixth marriage. Some of them we'd find them and their life is wrecked and their heart and their home is wrecked because that arrow never changed course. Can I say, if you were saved at a young age, don't be ashamed of the fact that your life is not in wreckage. Hey, listen, bless the Lord that your life is not in wreckage. Paul says, if you had known what I was, you would have seen how my course changed. Not only did his course change, verse 20, his cause changed. This is what he said, But I showed unto them, first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem, and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works meet for repentance. It's always funny to me. We just got through taking this road trip. And it's funny to me the difference in how exciting the road is on this side of it versus the other side. of it. When you leave out from home and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you got your cup of coffee and you know, the gas tank's full, everything's exciting, you know? And you're, oh, do we want to stop? Honey, that's the world's biggest ball of yarn. When are we ever going to see that again? Let's go. This place, they have that, they have goats that dance. Let's go see that. But man, by the end, the rental car looks like it's been, um, uh, uh, you know, riding around on the surface of Mars, and, and and you're pinching pennies, and you're tired, and you're over it, and you're coming back, and I mean, it don't matter what. Let me tell you something. I'm gonna be honest with you. I the, and, and, and don't don't. The, I wouldn't have turned aside to see the burning bush by the time I got east of St. Louis. It didn't matter what it was. I had the nose of that rental car pointed towards my driveway. And sometimes it's hard when you take that return trip because you're thinking, I'm going over all the same miles I went over before. Did you know Paul had to make a return trip? He started in Jerusalem as Saul of Tarsus. And he went and stopped at every city, knocking on doors, saying, Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If they were, he'd haul them out. He'd put them in chains. He'd put them in the wagon. He'd carry them back to Jerusalem to be sentenced to death. And he wound his way up the northern trajectory through Israel. He passed from Jerusalem up through Galilee, up through Damascus, up through all these places looking. And then all of a sudden he met the Lord. And the Lord said, Paul, you've got this whole thing wrong. He said, all right, Lord, you're right. And he gave his heart to Christ. He said, what do I do now, Lord? And the Lord said, well, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to start there. And I want you to make your way up through the streets. And I want you to stop, knock at every door and say, Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And if they are, don't hang them, hug them. If they are, encourage them. And if they're not, share with them that I can do for them what I did for you. He spent the rest of his life doing that. We call it being a missionary. Paul would have called it a way of life. He would have just (laughs) simply said... In verse 22, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great. I don't know that he thought of himself as a missionary. He thought of himself as a Christian whose job it was to witness to everyone, both small and great. His cause had changed. But then notice verse 21, his crowd changed. He says this, for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Do you understand who these people were? They were his friends. These weren't strangers to him. These were people he had broke bread with. These were people he had been raised with. The Bible tells us he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, trained up in the rabbinical teachings there at Jerusalem. And and, I mean, these were his friends. But you know, funny thing about it, he didn't have to ditch his friends. All of a sudden, his friends' opinions about him changed. The same crowd that had been clapping for him were now crowing for his death. The same ones that had supported him now sought him that they might put him to death. His whole crowd changed. I'll tell you this, when you get saved, and I listen, I'm thankful we can have people that don't know the Lord, we can be friends to them, and we can love them. But I'll tell you this, there's no fellowship like the fellowship of the people of God. You get saved, your crowd, there'll be certain crowds you just don't hang around anymore. Say, preacher, I don't want to lose them, I don't want to leave them. You won't have to leave them, they'll leave you. When you won't do what they're doing, they won't hang around you anymore and you'll find out who really loves you and who really cares about you. I see his conversion. And finally, I want you to notice his conversation. I use that word in a biblical sense. Conversation, not just meaning the things that he said and how he talked, but meaning his manner and way of life. Paul says, if you want to know if it's real, here's how you can tell it's real in my life. Verse 22, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue. I continue unto this day, witnessing both small and great. It's interesting that Paul, he didn't say, having therefore obtained help of God, I've planted churches. Having therefore obtained help of God, i fought wild beasts at Ephesus. Having therefore obtained help of God, I've been shipwrecked a day and a night. Having obtained help of God, I've seen untold thousands or tens of thousands saved. He says, having obtained help of God, I continue. Hey, listen, we can't say enough about faithfulness. Can I tell you, one of the greatest miracles in a person's life is that they be faithful to God. If you don't think so, hang around Christians. And you'll find out that just as the psalmist cried, a faithful man who can find. But Paul says, you want to know what the miracle that God did in my life is? He didn't just change me, but the change stuck. It lasted. And he points to two things. One, a consistent ministry. He says, I'm still going. He said, "They, they, they beat me. They've stoned me. I've been left for dead. But I just can't quit. i got to keep going. God changed His life in a consistent way. And now His day-by-day life was devoted to the cause of Christ. And then He's given a consistent message. I like this, verse 22, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Stick with me for a moment. You understand where he's saying this. He's standing at the judgment area in Caesarea Philippi. He is on trial for saying this. They are putting him to death, the Jews would like to, for saying that Christ is risen from the dead. He tells Agrippa, I know you don't understand it, Agrippa, but let me explain to you why. I just can't give up on this thing. Of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he starts with who he was. And he goes to what God did. In him and for him. And he talks about what God's been doing through him. And he comes down to the end. And he says you know Agrippa. I have changed. On that road to Damascus. I certainly changed. But since that day. I've not changed a whit. I'm doing what I've always done. I got up from that road believing Jesus is alive and I still believe He's alive today. And Agrippa, to deny that would be to deny the very essence of who I am. you want to know what great miracle God has done? You say, preacher, God doesn't do miracles anymore. Sure He does. Sure He does. We have small expectations of God. We think God does a miracle if He pays a bill, if He heals a disease. We think God does a miracle if He mends a relationship. We think God does a miracle if He removes an obstacle. All those things are wonderful. Rejoice in them. But can I tell you this? Every time a sinner comes to know Jesus Christ, a greater miracle has taken place than any of those other things. It's funny to see the charismatic movement obsessed with the concept of seeing some expressive, visible evidence of the work of God on this earth. And yet I see it every day. I see it all around me. And they're sitting around waiting for God to show up. I'm asking, when are you going to show up? He's been here. He's been working. He's been doing amazing things in our lives. I will tell you this. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Can I tell you, you can look around this room and you can see, you may not believe it, but you're surrounded by people that have no doubt because they've seen what God's done. They're not arrogant. There's not a person in this room that would say, well, I just know it because I know everything. They'd all admit that like Saul of Tarsus, They were going along in their blindness and rebellion, but then that God showed up in their life. And testimony after testimony of the greatest miracles that God performs are here seated in these pews today. The question is, have you let Him do that miracle in your life? If you've not, man, I hope you will today. He wants to. He's willing to. The only thing that can stop Him is you. But if you're willing to let Him do that in your heart and life today, He will. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. Here's what I want to ask. If God's burdened your heart about something or someone, something or someone that could be an occasion in your life. Maybe you've had trouble. Maybe you've thought small of God lately. Maybe you've been facing something and you have thought, well, it's impossible. God can't do that. And yet he saved you. So what could he not do? Why don't you come and why don't you ask the Lord to work in that matter? Or maybe it's a person in your life. And you'd say, Preacher, I just don't think God could save them. I don't think God could change them. Hey, if He could change Paul, He could change you. If He could change Paul, He could change them. Won't you come and lift their name to the Lord this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.